0: Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. I've been promising to chat about the Hunter Class Frigate Program for a while and uh, we'll do it today, though fairly briefly because there are a couple of other topics that I think are worth canvassing as well. I was originally going to try and be as unemotional about this as I could, but when it comes to the selection of the Type 26 design for the Hunter-class frigate program, I and a few other journalists feel a little bit used in this exercise, and I'll shortly explain why. Now, the background was that the competition was between a modified Hobart-class air warfare destroyer, an Italian frigate called Frem, F-R-E-M-M, and the Type 26 from the UK. Now, my early thinking was really related, or everything was related around the Hobart class because it was in production or had just narrowly gone out of production. The Type 26 was not really in the running because around 2015, 2016, it was still very much a paper concept and wasn't under contract. And the Frem, the Frem was an interesting concept, but I thought, on the one hand, if you're going to go for an existing design, then the Hobart class is the logical one. If you're going to go for a new high-risk thing, then the Type 26 would be the one to go for. And that's no disrespect to the Frem, that was just my perspective on things. The advantage that the Hobart class had seemed to disappear in 2018 when BAE systems started cutting steel for the first Type 26 in Glasgow. The ship was imaginatively named HMS Glasgow. There you go. And that was kind of a game changer because that design went from being a theoretical construct to being an actual physical construct. And so, in my mind, the two horse race then became one of between the Hobart class and the Type 26. Now, As soon as steel had been cut, then came the really hard sell from BAE Systems and the UK government, and particularly the Royal Navy. And I'll give BAE Systems a slight leave pass here, because all companies, when you're on a marketing exercise, and I've been engaged in many when I had my time in the industry, of course, what you do is try and emphasize the positives about your bid and minimize the negatives. But when you've got representatives of a government that are prepared to engage in the peddling of misleading information or incomplete information or... Anyway, I'll just explain the situation and and then you can connect the dots. Now, the three big issues for me where I felt that we were given an incorrect picture were firstly, the maturity of the Type 26 design. The Royal Navy insisted, and I'm talking officially, I'm not talking like, you know, a beer after hours, I'm talking about official presentations given not only to journalists, but also members of the Royal Australian Navy and the Australian government. Maturity of design. The RN claimed that because the program had faced successive delays, that was actually a good thing because they had invested £1 billion, that was number, very easy to remember, £1 billion in maturing the design. And they went as far as to say, this was the most mature design that the Royal Navy had ever put into production. Now, I will observe that was simply not true. And by the way, I'll expand on all of these points in a future episode. I can't do everything in one go. The topic is just too big. The second point of exaggeration or incorrect information was the existence of a digital virtual twin of the type 26, where it was explained to all of us that all of the Australian-specific changes, of which there were many, particularly the radar suite, a different helicopter, all of that sort of stuff, that it was going to be simplicity itself to incorporate all of these changes, because with the existence of the virtual twin ship It was a matter of just going to a computer and doing a mouse click and drag to shift stuff around. Now, that was not only just a sort of grotesque exaggeration of reality. It was a complete distortion of reality because it turns out that the virtual twin ship certainly didn't exist at the time. And to be honest, I'm not sure that it even exists now because I keep on hearing reference to the virtual twin being populated was that my misunderstanding? Mm, I'm sure that was part of it. But no, all of the briefings and all of the conversations were about the virtual twin existing in the here and now, not some sort of long-term future development. The third point where a number of us were clearly misled was regarding high levels of Australian content where all of the British, I'm talking about officials and the company companies, plural actually, because there were many involved, they spoke as if high levels of Australian content would be in place from ship one and onwards. And the logic of this was that not only was BAE Systems, the prime contractor, well-established in Australia, but so were another or a number of the major entities, Babcock, BMT, Rolls-Royce, all of the rest of it. That was a really good story, and we all faithfully reported all of that. Turned out that was not right. Turned out that all of those promises about Australian industry involvement only kicked in with the batch two ships. The whole idea is that they're built in three batches. The first batch of three ships each, the first batch hasn't even been contracted for. It became clear after the award of the contract to BAE Systems that their existing supply chains would be used for ships one through to three. Again, was that a misunderstanding that we all made? No, I think not. We were told one thing and it turned out that was not reality. The basic point in all of this, it's okay to fool journalists. We don't have engineering resources. We don't have hundreds of people on the payroll. We don't have hugely expensive consultants that we can call in at the drop of a hat. But the Royal Australian Navy does and CASG does. So how could it be that they were all fooled as well, that they believed all of these assurances about the maturity of the design, the ease of Australianising it, and high levels of Australian content? I just don't get that. Now, decisions not made based on what journalists say or write, but the media does play a role. And collectively, we made life to my retrospective shame, as easy as we possibly could for the British and BAE systems because we assumed that all of this information was being given to us in good faith, and I now seriously question whether that was the case. I think this sets a terrible precedent for AUKUS and the prospect of acquiring a nuclear-powered submarine designed and initially purchased from Britain. But that's so far in the future, it's probably not worth stressing about. Now, I also note in the news, hasn't received much coverage, the Green Senator David Shoebridge has recommended that the new National Anti-Corruption Commission have a look at the award of the Hunter Class Frigate Program to BAE Systems. Do I think that it was a corrupt deal? No, not at all. I see no evidence of that sort of high-level Financial manipulation taking place. I think that what we saw was just an unfortunate case of groupthink and an unfortunate case of taking so much of what Britain had to say on trust without thoroughly examining it. And that's on RAN and that's on CASG. They can't just brush this off saying that, oh, the design was not as mature as we were led to believe. It's their responsibility to double-check all of this sort of stuff. Now, do I think that the scope for corruption in defense contracting? I can't rule it out, but I very much suspect that if any of this stuff occurs, it's at a sort of lower level. It's with consulting work and smaller IT contracts and all of that sort of stuff. And I'll relate one unsavory episode from my own career where I was actually in industry. I wasn't even working as a journalist, but I was leaked some information from within defense in the hope that I would pass it on to a couple of journalists, which I did. They then promptly ignored it. I've no idea why. Anyway, this was uh, documents from a government business enterprise heavily involved in defense contracting. You can probably figure out which organization it is, I'm just not going to name them. And I noticed that the information that I was sent was a record of a lot of their so-called minor expenses for, the, for whatever financial year. It was somewhere in the 2005 to 2010 period. I could be more precise, but, but I'm you know, just off the top of my head. That gives you a, a rough idea. Anyway, as I, was, I was wondering why this had been sent to me. And then I started reading through the detail. And as I was going down the page, looking at these annual payouts, and a lot of them appeared to be for all sorts of ancillary services and things like that, but there were not a number of repeat payments for $74,990. Thought, this is odd. Well, how is it possible that this kind of weird amount repeats itself maybe around 10 times to different consultants. When I did a little bit more due diligence, I discovered that pretty much all 10 of these people were ex-Navy officers of some seniority. And I then did some more research and I discovered that back then, the Department of Finance had a rule that for contracts under $75,000, The government business enterprise basically didn't need to provide any further detail. Just that one line item was sufficient for their internal accounting needs. So obviously, what was happening was that the organization was being used to pay former colleagues the maximum amount of money under the Department of Finance ceiling. Now, was that corrupt? I don't know. You'd have to go into the detail of the consultancy services that were being provided. Maybe they were enormously beneficial. Maybe they were exceptional value for money contracts, but all of them were classified as providing strategic advice. Now, $74,990 in my book buys a fair bit of strategic advice every year. And why you would need that in parallel from about 10 different people is beyond me. So, when I'm thinking that the stuff around there that needs to be double-checked, yes, I definitely think that sort of stuff exists. Okay, so that's it for Hunter Class Figure program for the moment, but we will be returning to that. Another one, Hawkeye vehicles for Ukraine, or rather lack of Hawkeye vehicles for Ukraine, because the government has gone public saying that defense has advised them that Hawkeye is cannot go because they have ongoing breaking problems and they could not be supported in the Ukraine. Let me, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to swear, even though this is my own podcast. I'll have to check with Marilyn, the publisher. Marilyn runs this place with a rod of iron, but I'll have to get a ruling for future episodes. I'll just say that that stuff coming from defence is pure BS. First of all, on the breaking issue. ABS brakes, that is purely an issue so that the Hawkeyes can be registered to be driven on Australian roads. It's a regulatory matter. It's not a technical matter. Every time the vehicles go off-road, be it in Australia or the Ukraine, the ABS system is disconnected anyway. So that's just a complete non-starter. That is the worst, most feeble excuse that I think I've ever heard. The second one, that the Hawkeyes could not be supported in Ukraine, that's, you know, there's a little bit of room for conjecture there, but I also don't believe it. Because when you look at the composition of the vehicles, yeah, they're majority Australian manufactured, but they still have significant componentry coming from overseas. The engines are from Austria, from Steyr, Talos bought the company. The transmissions are from ZF, the German manufacturer. The add-on armor comes from the Israeli company Plasan, and there are a number of specialized components that come from the US. All of this means that it might be a little bit more difficult to support in the Ukraine than it would be in Australia, but really not that much more difficult. If there was sufficient will to make it happen, I think you could do it without a whole lot of risk. So on both of those scores, the ABS breaks and supportability in the Ukraine, I think that the information that the Australian public has been given is just plain wrong. I am reminded, however, since we're talking army vehicles and their development, just to give readers who, listeners, sorry, who might not know about these sorts of things, how painful it can be And I'm reminded of the early developments of Bushmaster, back in the days when it was being developed by Australian Defence Industries, who were subsequently acquired by Tullus, and the dry sponge test. Now, Army insisted that the external lockers of the vehicles be completely watertight. This was a fundamental design requirement. The vehicle could not be accepted until the necessary level or degree of water tightness had been achieved. And the test that Army invented was that a completely bone-dry large sponge was put in each locker. The lockers were then blasted with a fire hose for a finite amount of time. Can't remember exactly, 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that. If at the end of the fire hose treatment, the compartment was opened up and any of the sponges were in the slightest bit damp, The lockers had to be redesigned. This went on and on and on, adding enormously to delay and cost in the program. When there are a couple of things to remark. When the Bushmasters go off-road, pretty much the first thing that gets bashed are the lockers on the sides, and they lose their waterproof integrity. Secondly, what's wrong with just putting your kit in a plastic bag first and then putting it in the locker? But no, because Army were just so enchanted that they wanted these waterproof lockers. It really caused big problems for the program. I just use that as an illustration of just how plain silly it can get. Now, I'm going to conclude again on another one of my favorite topics, the Sirtas Tote Array. Last time I said it couldn't get even worse, guess what? It's even worse. Defense have come back to me with, a little bit more information confirming that the request for information process that I referred to previously was for C5012, and also that there is some sort of AUKUS connection, but they won't state what it is. The new information, I have found out that at least one Australian company when they responded to the RFI, as well as putting in a lot of the generic information that they were asked for, also used the opportunity to put in a very detailed proposal about how Australian industry could develop and build and field a product extremely similar to CERTAS. So I know that Defence had that volume of information when they made the decision to instead go to the United States and pay $309 million to buy it from an American company. So previously, I thought that the decision was based on kind of a willful ignorance that they just went, oh, okay, none of these RFI responses has provided enough information for us to feel confident enough to go with an Australian solution, so therefore we've got no choice but to go with the US. Just doing that would have been completely wrong. It would have been an insufficient investigation into local capabilities. But as I say, it's far worse because they had sitting in front of them a detailed proposal for doing it all here. The other things to mention with this RFI process, none of the companies received any feedback at all from Defence and Navy, none, and there was no further action requested. So when you think about the small number of people in defence necessary to take this decision, we're probably talking about less than 20. A few senior people in Navy, a few senior people in defence, a couple of ministerial advisors, and then presumably at least one minister, either Pat Conroy or Richard Miles, has signed off on this So this tiny number of people collectively have agreed to transfer $309 million to the United States, effectively gutting the future of the Australian sonar industry. And you have to ask why. But it doesn't stop there. I'm going to conclude with two final points. For the American CERTAS system to work effectively, it needs to be towed behind an ultra-quiet ship you can't just use it off crafts of opportunity and hope to get sensible results. Trust me on this. You can't just get a secondhand ship or an existing Navy craft and tow it and get results. It's got to be as it is in the US inventory and the Japanese inventory. They're the only two other users of CERTES. It's got to be towed behind a ship designed specifically for the task. And that is going to cost. A lot of money. And finally, it's difficult not to laugh when I get to this last point. It turns out that the US version of Certas is obsolete, and the US has already issued a request for information to their industry for a next-generation surveillance array. So there we go. Zero Australian content, $309 million to the US for an obsolete product when we could have done it here all by ourselves. Okay, that's it for this week. Goodbye and thank you for listening. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit AsiaPacificDefenceReporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.